Welcome to Humanitu. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of this podcast series that's about humanness and creativity. Today I'm talking with Virgil Ortiz, an artist internationally renowned for his work in pottery, fashion, and film. Virgil carries and propels a legacy of potters from Cochiti Pueblo, New Mexico, near Santa Fe, including that of his mother, Seferina Ortiz, and grandmother, Lorencita Herrera. His work is featured in museums and galleries across the U.S., including the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, and in Europe. Virgil's figurative storytelling work in clay often is described as innovative. We'll talk about why that is and isn't entirely true. We'll talk about how the clay spoke to his parents and spoke to him, showing Virgil his life purpose at only 15 years old, his actual reason to live that he still trusts and follows these decades later. We get into how his pottery is used for maintaining a long ancestral history of social commentary through art, and why it's important to him to use his voice and to speak out on taboo subjects like politics, mental health, and social justice, including LGBTQ rights. He shares what contemporary two-spirit people like RuPaul, Grace Jones, Boyd George, and the late Pete Burns have to do with him, his work, and his indigenous heritage. Virgil Bridges the past and the future in his work, conceptually and technologically. In the process, he keeps the history of his ancestors from being disappeared, from being erased. He educates the public, and he inspires younger generations, opening doors and mentoring them for their own work. Here's my conversation with the accomplished and the humble Virgil Ortiz. Hey, Virgil. Welcome to Humanitou. I'm glad to have you here. Right on. Thanks for having me. You know, I know this is a really, really busy time for you. You've got the Santa Fe Indian Market going on this month, all month long. It's a well-known anticipated event, I think, right, that's been got a lot of history to it. And in fact, recently I saw uh, online Vogue magazine featured you and seven other artists from the market a couple of weeks ago. So I want to start with just asking you, how that's going this year. And obviously it's different than past years because of the pandemic and it's virtual. So what is your experience of it this year? Yeah, it was, a, I mean, this is the first year that it is virtual. So it kind of threw a lot of people off that I've been talking to, but I think everybody's going with the flow and learning how to uh, interact online with clients and getting their work on their websites and what Swaya has been doing. Um, the people that put together Indian market, it was, um, they offered all the different artists uh, to be able to show their work online and to uh, develop websites for them. So a lot of the artists that didn't have websites before um, are taking advantage, which is really awesome because they're learning how to uh, photograph their work, um, format them and get them onto a website format and interact that way, which we all have to do. But it's been, um, looks like it's been going really smooth. I've attended one function, of the, the fashion show function of the presentation of videos. And it was uh, um, following the guidelines, very small, intimate, but it went really well. And um, I think people are adapting to it. And again, we are all, all in this together. So um, it looks like it's working well. Great. And you actually are in the Santa Fe area, I think, what, about 45 minutes or so outside of there with Cochiti Pueblo. That's where your roots are. It's where you live and have great family history with uh, work that that 
continues with things that you do. So I'm guessing that you have grown up with this Indian market uh, going there and those things. Is, is that true? Yeah. Uh, Kochi is like 30 minutes and it's away from Santa Fe, south of Santa Fe and is between uh, Santa Fe and Albuquerque. But yeah, my parents have been doing the Indian market for uh, ever since I can remember since I was a kid. I remember sleeping under the, the table that we had their artwork uh, for sale on. But um, yeah, I mean, like I just kind of was brought up going to Indian market, everybody working, creating their their artwork for specifically for the Indian market, which always happens uh, the third weekend in August. So I've been um, in that whole situation my whole life. And um, it's just been a part of like our whole, um, a lot of the artists yearly income, like the, uh, a big part of it. So it's been very awesome to have it and have that resource for all of the artists to share the work and also to meet each other. Cause a lot of people drive in from around the States and uh, up North and everybody meeting together is just like a big reunion. So it's been an awesome time for all of us. And this year, I'm guessing that for a lot of people, there's that experience of loss, like so many of us are having because of the pandemic, so many different events and things that we look forward to having to be sort of tamped down or even plain eliminated. And and I'm glad that you are at least getting to do this virtually, that all the people involved are. Yeah, it's really, I mean, like I've been doing this a long time, like I've had my website for a while and I've adapted to online sales and all a while back, but a lot of the people, like when I was thinking about it, when they announced that it was going to go virtual, I felt kind of um, freaked out for artists that have not um, had websites, right? Whether to uh, whether it be their age or they just never done it or had no access to Wi-Fi or anything digital like that. But I think now that everybody does have uh, cell phones, it's um, doable to be able to photograph your work and that's like a little side thing that I was helping Swaya with is to make uh, short videos of uh, kind of the behind the scenes of how I get my artwork going how I photograph them whether it be in a light box or a do-it-yourself version where you could get poster board tape it up on the wall and make a little psych wall to photograph your work on and how easy it is to get um, the best pictures you possibly can to display your work and just really walk them through um, that it is uh, not to be intimidated to work this way. And hopefully it's been working and I've, we've gotten really good feedback that uh, they are um, doing this and um, it's turning out really well. I hope it can have a lasting positive effect once they've crossed this hurdle. Uh, you know, even though, you know, I think a lot of things for a lot of people, we've been pushed now outside of the comfort zones to have to learn and figure out something else. And I think it's changing the way a lot of us go forward. But I, I want to talk about your family history. You mentioned going to the market with your parents from the time you were a child. You were the youngest of six children and you grew up in a really creative environment in which, I mean, storytelling and especially I think the clay and the natural methods of of craft and, and creating these things, this was all just part of your everyday life. And so I'm wondering about what you might remember, if you can describe for us any particular experiences, memories that have stuck with you from childhood. I mean, during the summer times, I guess when I was a kid, I always wake up and watching cartoons like everybody else does. But you get up and you see your, um, our mother, Seferina, working on the um, dining room table with clay. And that has always been just, you know, there my entire life since I can remember. So like um, the whole family gathering together to go gather all the uh, the materials that we need to to make the pottery. 
we would go on outings to get the clay in one area. The next time we'd go get the temper to mix with the clay in another area. Then also to make our paint. It was um, a certain time of the year when the wild spinach grows that um, it blooms its purple flowers and all of our family gets together because it's a real tedious project uh, process to do. You have to collect only just the leaves from the wild spinach plant. And it's just a whole process and that's always been in the back of my head uh, as far as I can remember. But yeah, just going like she never forced us to pick up the clay or nothing, but it was always there. And I thought that's what everybody, every kid did or every family did. But <laughs> it's pretty funny to actually go to school and come back and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to, you know, work on clay. And it's like, what are you guys going to do? Like, what are you talking about? Work with clay. So it wasn't until like I was maybe in the teens that I realized that not all families did art. And I just thought everybody did. So like different families made shoes, moccasins or jewelry or paintings or whatever. But it was pretty insane to uh, just how common it was in our ho- household that art was everywhere. Our dad, Guadalupe, was a drum maker. So he'd be working on drums. Our mother would be working on pottery. Our grandmother on our mom's side, they were all potters. So um, some of my cousins also worked in clay. So it was very common. Um, but nowadays it's like all after all the masters are dying out, it's, um, a dying art form. And I've dedicated my life to really try to make sure that that connection using traditional methods and materials stays alive. And with all my nieces and nephews or anybody else that wants to participate or learn it, like, you know, I'm here to teach them and hopefully that will continue the tradition of making pottery here. Yeah, you mentioned your mother, Seferina Ortiz, your grandmother, Laurencita Herrera. They were fairly well known for their work, right? And now yeah. it seems like, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but it sure seems like that not only are you carrying this, this on with the traditional methods and things, but you're also extending it and you're known for your work pretty far. And, and I'm going to guess that that's uh, farther and with wider uh, reach than those before you might have had is that a fair guess on my part it is i mean it's just like it's like i mentioned earlier it's like a dying art form here and all of the families that had masters in their in their family like not all of them worked completely with clay or every day with clay uh, growing up so everybody um to make a living they got jobs off of the pueblo and you know they had to live and feed their families as well so once when you know when they try to come back and um, pick up the clay. It, it's very time consuming to g- gather all the materials and all the, the, just the methods of how to make the pottery is like real time consuming. So it's, it, it's a heavy duty. Uh, you have to dedicate a lot of time to do it. And a lot of people that are in clay families don't have the time to do it now. So um, it's just really a hard thing and a very scary thing to know that it may da- die out if people don't really pick it back up. So um This is like, I've been trying to like, just me being kind of having ADD as well, bouncing all over the place and thinking of different mediums uh, uh, to work in. I just try to learn as much as I can and to really develop a storyline that, or um, yeah, a storyline so I could build different characters and interesting uh, clay works and hopefully sparking imagination as my head was sparked as a kid. And I really wanted to transform it into clay. So this is when you start to see all the different types of um, of uh, characters uh, from a, a movie script that I've written. 
And so it's just really kind of telling the whole story about the 1680 Pueblo Revolt and happening in 1680 um, and also in the future in 2180. So it allows me to bring in a sci-fi aspect to, to the storytelling. And um, this is how I'm trying to encourage the kids to, or get their attention basically first. You have to do that because everything is online, everything's social networks now these days. So like if there's something that is not that interesting to them, they're not going to pay attention to it. So I'm trying to really make it fantastical and very uh, eye-catching for them to hopefully get their attention. It got my attention the first time I saw your work from that. It was at the Fine Arts Center in, at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. Okay, and it okay. just blew me away. And I, I am going to get to some questions on that because, well, I have a number of things I'm curious about with that. But before we get there, I do want to ask, you once said, I, I think it was in a video that I saw from you, that you realized when you were 14 or 15 years old that you were put on earth to really keep this tradition of pottery making alive uh, in the Pueblo and, and to try to make it as fun as possible to be able to reach and connect with that next generation. So I love that you've already introduced that this is kind of a, a bridge of history and future that I think you're holding together, you're, you're establishing. And I want to talk about that revolt and the fashion design elements, the pottery elements, all of these things. I don't know any other way to describe it other than like, I guess you did where it's futuristic in the sense of if people think of Star Wars, if they have seen that and they remember you're connecting the history with the future. And I'm curious what happens in your Pueblo when people say, but these are our traditions. You're straying from that by taking it in this other direction. Have you ever had to meet any of that backlash, so to speak, within the community about it? Or is everybody championing that you are carrying it forward? Yeah, well, people are, uh, I would imagine, I mean, I've never heard it um, face to face, if you will, but I would imagine that they're saying like, what, what, what is he doing with all these different characters? It's not like um, from the Pueblo, but um, it, it goes back to most people don't know about our Cochiti Pueblo historic pieces. And it, they're all based on social commentary. So um, it's kind of like a timeline and capturing uh, caricatures, whatever people, um, the goings-ons that is happening at a certain time. And uh, our ancestors captured that in clay. So um, a lot of people don't ha haven't seen that, all these historic figures and they're like um, way more intense and way more far out than what I'm doing right now. So I, it, that's my chance. It gives me a chance to educate people and show them now that I have the resources and photographs to show them of what our people were doing way back when. So a lot of the influences that they were creating was when the railroads were first being laid in this area and new people were being introduced to this area. So with that came like uh, operas and traveling circus sideshows. So you see all these really intense, really cool looking uh, figures that are the sideshow characters in, in circuses. Some of them are like tattooed. Some of them are, you know, Siamese twins, uh, uh, just different characters that you would see in the old time circuses and okay. these kind of shows. So once they realize that, you know, cause everybody's used to seeing a storyteller figure, which is a seated mother carrying babies or a grandfather carrying babies or animal carrying its babies. And that was like introduced in like maybe the fifties in Kojiti. So that became a traditional image or a subject for Cochiti potters. But once you go way back to the 1800s, then you see all of the social commentary pieces, which is 
mind-blowing in itself so people that call me innovative i'm like "Uh, i don't think so like check out you know where i got my ideas from and what i'm trying to revive and what i'm trying to do talking about today's subjects whether it be in political subjects or just whatever is going on in fashion or whatever but still using the same methods and materials that our ancestors did and it's only the only thing that has changed is just the time so it's um yeah just it's it's pretty cool to watch the reactions to show them like they uh some of the older pieces were commenting about prostitution that were going on and you know a lot of the commentary that was painted and written onto the historic pieces were like the transactions of how much you know uh they would hire these uh women for so it's just like that was could you imagine how how scandalous that would have been back in the day but so now like i'm just saying like there's i mean i'm in no comparison to that i'm just making that connection of what um they were originally intended for is for social commentary so you you do work that speaks on things like politics mental health uh gender identity there are a number of things and i am going to want to talk about those series, but I'm curious first about what lights the fire and courage for you to speak out, especially at a time when, um, you know, it can be pretty scary for people to speak out. And most people don't speak out. I see that you do it on social media, not just in your artwork. So this is a pretty consistent, um, I guess, behavior. I don't want to, and I don't think that's the best (laughs) word, but it's, it's action that you take. Yeah. Okay. So I'm curious about where that fire and courage comes for you to speak out on all the things that we're seeing, which is a lot right now. We're seeing a lot every day. Yeah. So, I mean, like just to go back and tell you a short story about how I learned how to do this and like use art um, to speak with, but like just growing up, like I told you, like I would always see uh, our mother and our grandmother making pottery, working in clay. And I would do that. So then like all these different um, dealers that owned um, there were private dealers or owned galleries would make buying trips to the different pueblos when they would come to our house maybe i would guess four times a year maybe they would buy pieces and um, the main one that would come around was his name is robert gallegos and he was out of albuquerque so he knew me as as a kid like when i was six years old and um he would visit all the families that were making um the traditional pottery and he would purchase them, but he would also at the same time watch the uh, family members, the kids of who was um, starting to pick up the the making of the pottery. And he was just really kind of keeping track of who was going to continue this tradition because Cochiti now is one of the smallest pueblos. So he was kind of doing research as well and hope, um, hopefully watching the kids pick up the art making. And so when... I learned how to make like the traditional pots with the geometric designs and Cochiti public designs or family designs as well. And then also the storyteller figures. But I guess me just being influenced by different TV shows or movies. And I started getting more and more and pushing my creative to make the figures stand up and start painting them, which eventually lent to like in different clothing and designs uh, styles with what they're wearing, which eventually led to my fashion design career. But so then it just started developing on itself and all these different characters started popping up and Robert Gallegos was asking my parents, like, where is he seeing all these, uh, these characters from, or how is he, you know, what pictures are he, is he looking at? And 
my parents were just like, no, he's just uh, being, you know, experimental and creative and we're just letting him doing it, supporting him. So he had asked them to bring me down to his showroom in Albuquerque. And that was the first time we actually went because he would come to buy the pottery and the most of the artists didn't go to his uh, studio. So it was pretty cool when we finally went down there and I was about 15 uh, years old then. And we walked into his showroom and our mouse hit the ground <laughs> because once we went in, it, it turned out that he had the largest collection of historic Cochiti Pueblo figurative pottery. And all of the pieces that I was making without seeing any imagery or nothing, um, they all looked exactly like these historic pieces. So my parents uh, pulled me out of his showroom and took me outside, I remember, next to our vehicle. And they explained it to me like, you see none of the, I mean, all of this just happened and it's not something that we taught you and the clay is speaking to you and through you. So this, they just said they wanted me to remember that specific day and time of when we first seen the historic pieces in person. So it was pretty intense that Bob Gallegos really tripped out uh, that we didn't know any anything about these uh, historic figures. So that was a huge moment in my life where I knew that the clay has chosen me and I felt that it was that was my duty and my reason to be alive is to make that continuation and don't let it die out. So that's the first time I knew I was going to dedicate my life to clay. What I'm hearing in this is on one hand, you know, you're a, you're a kid, you're a teenager and you're being told something that is, I mean, it's sacred. It's possibly a weight to hear you have been chosen as carrying this lineage of work, these storytelling figurative pieces that have arisen naturally, organically within you. And I could see that being a reason not to be humble necessarily. And also what I hear, and I know plenty of examples in your story of there being humility. And in fact, your parents in, a, in another video that I have watched have gotten a chance to hear you say, your parents told you that this isn't about you. It's oh, about yeah. a talent, a gift that has been given to you and that you are carrying forward something that is so much bigger than you. And exactly. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. That's exactly what they said. And they're like, just with you knowing all of this, like, it's not about you just already know that. And I already knew that myself because just the power of what um, our people, who knows how they were able to figure all of the whole scientific part about it, of how all these elements work together, all the materials. Like, I mean, they, they just said, make sure that you, when you make traditional work to do it exactly how we, how we showed you. And there's no, steps that uh, don't skip any steps and of course like when i was 18 or something i tried to skip steps uh, making the wild spinach paint and instead of <laughs> instead of picking off just the leaves how i was taught i i i just tore off the the whole uh, stems and everything and i boiled them for like you know five days and it's like it's a it's a lot of work to get that done but okay i was all happy that i made the uh the paint so when i Came, when it came down to paint the pottery, um, the paint didn't work. So my parents were like, okay, now you know not to make short, don't take any shortcuts. So um, that's how I try to teach anybody that I do that wants to learn uh, how, how to make it exactly how my parents taught me. And it's just, that just I have to make that connection. And of course, yeah, like if the spirits have been, have trusted me to 
take this uh, type of artwork and continue it, then I sure as hell better do it and use it the right way. So yeah, that's why I'm trying to uh, use it as an educational tool as well to talk about our history, um, which has been swept under the carpet. But um, yeah, no, it's way bigger than I am. So that's, I mean, yeah, I have to do the best I can with it. That's such a great story, right? Because a teenage boy, a young man, I mean, how many of us have been in that same situation where we think we have the answers? And in this case, objectively from the outside, it sounds pretty funny because you're in that moment saying, I know better than all this history, this wisdom, this sacred ancient (laughs) wisdom that has been passed down through this whole lineage. No, no, no. I've got something for you. That's a pretty funny idea to me. It is. I'm going to circle back here because the question that we did start with had to do with what lights the fire and courage for you to speak out. And I think you kind of have answered that in the sense of there is something bigger at play here and the spirit's guiding you. But to be clear and and ask the question in this way, do you feel like that is how you feel the strength and the voice to then speak out with that courage and not be concerned about, say, posting about politics on Instagram that you're going to lose a customer or whatever, right? Yeah. Like you, it's about that fire and courage to do that. Is it because you feel like it's backed by this is what I'm meant to do or? Um, it, it's a combination of a lot of things. And I know if I'm interested, I mean, if I'm doing the wrong thing, none of this would work out. Right. So, so far it's all been going smooth and, um, telling, educating people about our people and to go along exactly with what they did so i feel that i have all of them to back me up so it doesn't matter what anybody thinks of what i'm doing or what i'm saying even if it's um high-end clients that don't agree with my political um talking you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be quiet because you know this is this is my feeling everybody has the right to speak up about how they feel and they should so this is you know for my point um i want to be on the right side of history and I really want to uh, just share that um, instead of being quiet and just letting it slide away, which is, I mean, if you want some change, you have to make it happen. I mean, if you don't do anything, then it's just going to stay exactly where it is. So, yeah, we have to all speak up and really speak up for not only for ourselves, but for our people or as who we are and support one another that way. And especially living through this whole pandemic was going on. There's a lot of people that do feel alone and they all have to realize that um, I always keep telling my, my whole family, like a lot of them are getting like, you know, everybody feels depressed or just going through different emotions that they've never felt before. So I always had to say, just reach out whenever you can. Like you just know that everybody's here. We're all going through the same thing. So it's not just us individually, but um, really talk about it and get your feelings out and get it out of your system. And uh, we have to adapt to it and move with it. And, um, make that change together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to come back now to the 1680, 2180 revolt and, and talking about, like I said, I saw that work, uh, for the first time at the fine art center at Colorado college. And I, I have just not seen anything like that. And if it's not clear to those listening at this point, when we're talking about pottery, there's so much more to it than if you're thinking of everyday dishware kinds of stuff here. And so to me, I'd say we're mostly talking about in the medium of clay that you're pushing boundaries with sculpture 
and in that storytelling. And then with the 1680 revolt uh, show and that work, you are bringing fashion design into it as well. And this is all about, again, connecting that history, taking it into the future and educating people on what has happened. And there's relevance to what is happening. Right. So why is it important to you to educate people on the history of that revolt of which I've gotten to hear a little bit, by the way, uh, on a visit to Taos Pueblo. And so I know a little bit of it, but if you want to give a brief overview for people who maybe have never heard of it before and then carry us into how you express that and why and, and the feelings and meaning of it in your art. Yeah. Well, like the, the chance to have that exhibition at the FAC in Colorado Springs was so amazing to me because that was one of the first shows that I did that incorporated all the different media that I do work in. So there was three huge rooms on the top floor. In the first room, I decided to show exactly where the historic pieces came from. So we're able to um, utilize some of the FAC's collection. And they also have one of the biggest uh, Southwest uh, Spanish um, collection there as well. So I wanted to show exactly how it started off. So a lot of the historic Cochiti pottery I was able to bring up from the dungeon, as they called it, and to also pick out some of the retablos and all the different uh, Spanish art that was there. So I wanted them to interact and so uh, tell the whole story of how when the first non-natives arrived to New Mexico, how, how they came in and then just using the art to explain that. So you see these saints which never existed in indigenous lands, right? So for them to come and to start taking over the lands and enslaving the Pueblo people to say, like, you can't practice your, your ceremonies, none of your dances anymore. This is your new, these are your new gods. These are the people that you bow down to. If you don't do it, you're going to get hurt. They're all instructed to build churches around all the Pueblos, which they still exist. So for a while there, there was a lot of punishment and slavery going on to build all of these churches. And the people had to go underground to continue to do our dances and ceremonies. Otherwise, they would get hurt. Eventually, just more of the non-natives kept coming into the area. It started getting rough. Um, a lot of um, um, raping and the genocide, that the bloodshed that happened. A lot of people don't know about it just because of the bloodshed. So it's been, it's not even, it's not taught in our schools. It's not in our, in our history books. So what I'm trying to do is to really educate the world about what happened, but just use the different um, art forms that I, I, I dabble in. But it's just been insane to, to show how really awesome to have that access to all of the historic pieces at the Fine Arts Center. And then some of them that are uh, indigenous Cochiti pieces and then Spanish work, combine them together, and then slowly, when you go to the next room, then you start to see the uh, just the like how the different storytelling, how I'm taking it into the future, and it's telling the same story happening in two different time dimensions. So the next room was all projection and fashion and mannequins and 3D projecting, and that was the first time I dabbled in 3D projections. Uh, this company IDM out of out of Albuquerque. They helped me bring this alive. We filmed some um, some of the characters. We did little snippets of like mixing not only like really cool older pieces of pottery, but then also using 
some of the creations that I did using the high fire ceramics. And then also, of course, the uh, models wearing all of the different um, costuming and foam, foam fabrication. But the best thing about this whole exhibition was that I was able to come to the Colorado College because they just recently had bought the Fine Arts Center. So I had a residency and also the exhibitions. For many, uh, uh, many of the pre-visits that I did, I was able to work with different um, classes and different uh, professors that wanted to take advantage of when I was there. So like working with like Southwest Studies was really awesome. Like the professor Karen Montoya, that was the professor there. She had worked her curriculum of educating the students about the Pueblo Revolt, Southwest Studies. And then so I was able to work with them, the fashion students, some of the printing students, the fa just fabrication of all different artists that were there. Um, it was really cool to involve the students that wanted to help me finish off the costuming. So a lot of them, the fashion students were helping me create these, these costumes. And they went through the whole process of learning how to work with an institution, a museum, and all of their whole staff of and realize how many people it takes to bring together an exhibition like this. And it's many hours and many people that, that uh, it takes to do it. And it was cool to have them next to me to see them or have them help me finish these pieces, go walk them to the exhibition, start dressing the mannequins, talk with the directors, talk with the um, curators and really show them the behind the scenes of just the, the massive amount of details that it takes. And then, in the end, when it opened, it was really cool to have them there and they're able to see their work in, in the exhibition. So um, they got a sense, an idea of like how to interact with directors and curators and a museum. So um, that worked out really well. And to this date, I still work with some of the students. So that was such an honor to be able to do that exhibition. I can only imagine the honor that it is for uh, the students to work with you as well to be part of that, to learn directly from you, not only from the art, but the history. And some of those students are, are native. Yeah, it was, it was really fun because once, once they know, well, I'm trying to break down uh, doors, like for them not to be intimidated by huge museums or, you know, um, curators and all, but, and just show like, you know, of course we're all people. So it's easy to, to do. And once you take those first steps, then you get the confidence. And I always help teach them to, uh, not to put up imaginary hurdles um, because they were never there to begin with. And also just to try anything, no matter if they didn't know anything about fashion, I was like, this is how you do it. Come try it. So the, all the failures that we all go through, those are our best lessons. You know, those are the quickest way to figure out what you want to do. If you set a goal over here, you're going to fail before you get to it, but at least you're learning how to figure out how to get to that goal. So it worked really well with the students and also with different uh, younger artists that were not students there. I know that you are aware of the artist Greg Deal, and yeah. I've been able to talk with Greg for this podcast as well, and I've gotten to learn a good amount about this history, uh, something I never would have known from school history classes, of course, and I'm getting to learn more from you having to do with the Pueblo uh, Revolt, and you used a word that he also used, genocide. And talking about these things that need to keep being told, need to be told again, need to be brought up because people like me, uh, an awful lot of the country are, are, are ignorant to it. We've inherited this history without even being aware of it or thinking about what it's meant. And 
I'm wondering about your thoughts on this. If we again get into the social commentary, again get into the politics, what the two of you, what I see in common here, what you are doing is fighting nothing less than erasure of history, the erasing of the history and ultimately your voices right. in a time of these current events and politics. I'm starting to kind of, I feel myself getting a little wound up, maybe a little more intensity in my <laughs> yeah. voice here. Yeah. The politics that are undercutting the truth and the facts with all this gaslighting and outright lying, they're launching goon squads or have been recently against peaceful Americans in American cities right. and just generally stoking deep ignorance and tension and and just at the bottom of it, hatred against other, whether that's because you're part of the quote other side of politics or other right. in terms of being uh, of a different race or gender or identity of any and every kind. And I'm just, man, I, yeah, where does this leave us? What, yeah, it's hard. What do we, what do we, and I'm, when I say we in this moment, I'm saying, especially white folks like me who have been ignorant to this history and inherited that without even thinking about what it's really meant and what our place and involvement in society is, what do we most need to understand about this history that you and, and Greg are keeping alive in your work? Yeah, first of all, like, I mean, Greg's work is really, really awesome. And I had the chance to be a juror on the arts in the streets that happens in uh, Colorado Springs. And I was very happy that um, his work got high marks uh, quickly. And I believe he won the grand prize. So um, I really respect what he's doing. Um, we all, you know, all of our people have basically went through the same thing. And then now it's translating to what's happening today in the real world and with non-Indigenous people. But now that the tables are being turned and it's actually happening to them, people are starting to wake up finally. So, you know, I really hope that people are paying attention of what what can happen to them if they don't vote and if they don't protect themselves and their families and their, 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 you know, their kids. So, um, using our art, like Greg and I do, it's just like, I'm so happy that it's finally, people are paying attention to it. And, you know, the best thing that people could do is to really, to research, um, all of our history. I mean, it's, there's not that much that's written about the Pueblo revolt, but there's some really, uh, a really good book by Herman Agoyo. And, you know, if you just pick up one of these books on Amazon or something or just like really take the t uh, time to read it, like open your eyes. And it's just kind of funny, like when I do um, exhibitions um, outside of the States, like in Prague or Amsterdam, where, you know, I did several at Cartier Museum in, um, in Paris. And it's just funny because all my the whole aesthetic, the whole storyline behind all of my art is all talking about the 1680 bubble revolt. And once I start talking and doing all of my lectures and stuff, all of the European people know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't really have to explain too much. They get it. They know our history more than Americans know our history. So when I do uh, shows, exhibitions here in the States, in metro cities, say L.A., New York, people don't have one clue about what I'm talking about. And even when I do shows and where it closely happened in Santa Fe, they still don't know what I'm talking about. So... It's just amazing and it feels kind of it's embarrassing that, you know, Americans don't know our history. So hopefully now that this is happening, people are waking up, protesting and fighting for their rights and knowing what's at stake. So everybody's and then it, it, it's also making people realize that we are closer together than we are different. Absolutely. Yeah. So for the support, I mean, eventually, like, you know, all of the younger kids get it. They don't see. Uh, sexual orientation they don't see color they don't see they're not 
they're not this kind of, of people like it's taught, right? So racism is taught and it, that's going to die out. And eventually, like I always say, like the old world is dying right now. And all of the people that are thinking you without all of these limitations and ugliness, it's like, you know, it's going to be a better place in the future. So we all have to remember that and fight for it, whether it be making art or talking about it. And you just have to speak up and stand for who you are. And not only for us as indigenous people, um, but everybody in general and to like, you know, do the best we can for each other and to spread peace and love. I mean, that's basically what it is. And it's the, the simple, I mean, the solution is very simple, but people throw in a lot of weird ass shit to, you know, that just complicates things. So like, if you take a step back from everything and look at it, what's happening, we are closely more related than we think. Absolutely. And, and you said for yeah. each other, it, it, it's, it's so key. And it seems, I, I don't understand why that ends up being such a challenge to, I think, far too many people. But I do hope that we are continuing to make some progress, even though some of the current events and things going on right now also make it seem like there's a significant piece of the population that is also dragging yeah. us backward or attempting to. Right. You know, I, I want to, you, you mentioned some things in there that I hear in something else I want to ask you about that is specific to your Taboo series. So like the name says, Taboo, you're addressing what for some is thought to be something that should be left unspoken. It's not polite. It's not um, you know, socially acceptable, maybe, in terms of subject matter. And so, of course, I like yeah, yeah, yeah. the things that you cover in that yeah. series, right? So these are things that have to do with more, again, of that social commentary. We're talking about politics, social mores, sex, gender, culture. Uh, you have um, some work in there on PTSD, for example. Right. But there's one piece in particular that I really want us to talk about, and that is alternative, uh, about the Zuni princess, Wewa, and she was an, an embodiment of the two-spirit. So this is going to be a two-part question. To start with the first part, when we mention two-spirit, if we talk about two-spirit people, that has a particular place in Native culture, correct? It does. I mean, like back in the day, that's like for that particular place, uh, alternative, it's like I wanted to express like how times have changed, like, um, and especially the indigenous cultures hold two spirit people in higher regards, um, back in the day. And we still do now, but the images that you see on that pot of our eighties, iconic, um, transgender or, you know, cross-dressing artists that were widely accepted. Um, none of them were natives, but the way a um, person, was from Zuni and that image is iconic because um, she had traveled to DC and that's where that picture was taken. So just to make that comparison of how not only back when she was here, but then also in the eighties and then now like how the LGBTQ community has to really fight for their rights. Um, and that's not right. It's uh, you know, it, it, it is going backwards, but there will be a change for it. And, this pot, all of these characters, like there's Grace Jones, Pete Burns, uh, RuPaul, Boy George. Um, I met all these people personally, so that was kind of why I chose these artists to be on there. And then to put them right next to Wewa because they're all iconic image, images and iconic um, people. So I just wanted to make that statement of how they too had to fight back in the day, but were accepted. And then all of a sudden we're going backwards. So this is like to that whole community want to realize that you know it's all going to get better and it's we can't stop fighting for it and 
that's just so weird how history repeats itself which is um i don't know i think it's just like a, a waste of time but it has to happen to get the whole train back on track and um yeah i mean the taboo series is all about hard to talk about subjects and like you said there's like the ptsd talk about cancer um the ptsd was specifically i made that when i worked at the colorado swings fine art center they had had some vets that were coming in with ptsd and they were they had art therapy going on and a lot of them were painters so i had the chance to interact with them and listen to their stories and um, talk about my story and then also give them a walkthrough of the exhibition and then they invited me to their studio where they create the art and then i took the time to go hang out with them and paint with them and i was in colorado springs teaching and doing this whole residency for like eight months i think and eventually like you know i just felt um, their stories i really resonated with them and i felt comfortable with all of them and at first some of them were you know the um the instructor was saying like don't freak out if they don't talk to you or you know they don't they don't shake their hand or do this so i was learning at the same time of how to work with people with ptsd and once i became closer with them like by the time you know i was having thanksgiving dinner with them or christmas dinner with them you know we all got along i started just painting with them and hanging out with them and it was just really cool to make this connection and to uh, the piece that i made was it showed a figure that had three eyes two mouths two noses I wanted to show like how the different of what they're battling all the time with um, their PTSD and they don't, sometimes they're afraid, sometimes they're not. And it's just kind of combining all together and also to respect them and, you know, thank them for their service and what they went through to protect us and to just fight for us as well. But yeah, the Taboo series is pretty cool. It's an ongoing series and it touches different subjects. Um, the I mentioned the cancer as well. Both our parents and our sister passed from cancer and I wanted to tell their story of using the clay, but we had debuted that piece at King Galleries in Scottsdale. And uh, this group of maybe 10 women had showed up to see this piece specifically. So when they were there, I was telling them the whole story about how our, we lost our parents to cancer and like uh, what the paintings meant on it, um, the designs meant on it and how it represented my family. And then when they were, sharing their stories that turned out they were all survivors. So they really wanted to come and see it in person and tell me thank you. So that blew my mind. But um, just creating art and having a piece of art in front of you on the table or on a pedestal to discuss it makes it a lot easier for anybody that wants to talk about that subject. So it's therapy for myself as well. And now that I've seen how it worked with other people, like I'm still going to continue to uh, the Taboo series. And I look forward to really seeing more of those pieces. It can be a bit of an open-ended yeah, right. uh, path, right? As, as more and more topics and, and as you come to them, I, I want to go step back for a minute to alternative. Um, so I said it was a two-part question. You went ahead and naturally took us into the second part, which was how that's relevant in today's world. And you said that you met all four of those famous people, those iconic people, Boy George, Pete Burns, RuPaul, and Grace Jones. <laughs> can we back up to that for a minute? And can you can you tell us when you say that you've met them, like what what yeah, went down it was there? Funny. Like um, specifically, Grace Jones. We were dining. We we're in New York at the time, and we we're dining at this place called Budokan. I was in the restroom, and I was washing my hands, and then I heard this voice, 
it was a genderless bathroom. So I heard this voice talking. I was like, oh my God, this sounds like Grace Jones. And I started washing my hands for like 10 minutes, <laughs> waiting for her to come out of the, the stall. <laughs> so she finally, she came out and it was her. And I was like, what? And I just like told her, I really respect what you're doing, your art. You've been inspired me. And, um, you know, I told her who I was and she's like, hello, darling, nice to meet you. So as soon as I shook her hand, I, as soon as I shook her hand, I ran out and I was like <laughs> super excited. But yeah, all these different characters, like um, Boy George is probably the re- the most recent one. Maybe three years, four years ago, we were in Los Angeles and we were going to go eat at this one restaurant and the gate, the door to the restaurant was right on the street. So I was coming down one end of the street. Um, he was coming down the other end. And we met up right at the entry and I was like, whoa, and he did the same thing back to me. Whoa. So you like mirrored what I was doing. And it was kind of funny because like he just, it was kind of, we're making fun of each other at the same time. And he just said, whoa, have you tried this, uh, this restaurant? I said, yeah, it's really good. He said, okay. He goes, well, it looks like it's crowded. Do you have a table? I said, I sure do. He goes, can I have a drink with you? And I said, of course. So we walked in. I mean, that was that simple. That was pretty crazy. We walked in, we're talking more. And as uh, we had a drink, and as soon as one person came up to ask him for his autograph, then he just got flooded. The whole restaurant came to him. So um, I had the chance to hang out with him for like maybe 20 minutes, I think. And then they hauled him off to a, a secret room in the back. Um, it was pretty insane to meet these people. but um, And I just really respect them. And they were also inspired me with through their music. Um, RuPaul was another uh, person that we met at a concert. We went to the Dead or Alive concert in Chicago, I believe. And we had were watching Pete Burns on stage singing. And by almost the end of the whole set, here comes this massive drag queen. And he it was RuPaul. And I recognized him right away because his um, supermodel track was like on top of the charts at that time. So he was wearing the same outfit that he, he was wearing in the video. And he towered me like maybe like about almost two feet I would say but of course like the whole heels that he had on and the hairdo and all just made it more really really cool to see in person and he gave a card to my girl Dowsa and I that were attending the concert and he said please come to my club afterwards we're having a reception like like if you guys could come check it out so I said okay so we met him there um, but then we met Dead or Alive singer Pete Burns, after the show was over, he came out and greeted the guests. It was a small venue, so I was able to meet him that way, too. And the music, I mean, I'm an 80s kid, so I was, my mind was blown listening to all these people and meeting them in person and, you know, just talking about their stories, their individual stories of um, what they had to fight for and then eventually are icons in the music industry and then setting that whole scene next to Weiwa which we hold in high regards as uh, that was a very fun and amazing pot to make. It's amazing and extraordinary how you encountered these people in separate, just by yeah. chance sorts of moments. And, you know, I was trying to think of who else might you put on there if, if there was somebody else to think of. And and I, I actually didn't come up with too many names myself of who else might've gone on there because these are such yeah. big names, uh, again, icons. And so it's, it, yeah, it's there's a great like David piece. Bowie. There's other people, you know, even people like kiss, you know, with all the different makeup, uh, that all their stage costuming was. And, um, it's just really cool to, uh, refer to these people just as like how I'm referring to historic pottery pieces. 
So then like anything that you see that I make now that looks really wild, it's just only following the traditions of what our ancestors did before is comments, uh, different, uh, su uh, the subjects that are happening now. So like at different clubs that I would hang out in, I would see leather clad people, uh, people in S&M clothing, latex. And then that is just me coming back to Cochiti, um, interpreting it into clay. And then people that ask about it, I'm, I can tell them that story. So it's basically, again, like I nothing has changed with the materials that I use when I work in traditional methods and materials, but only time has changed. So then you'll see the different characters change that I put on and into the, the clay pieces. Do you think that had you not had this sort of grounding, the, the roots of understanding the value and, and raising up two-spirit people, do you think that that could have had an impact? Like, you know, there's so many people in the country that they don't have that background. Yeah. And so they would look at somebody like RuPaul or see this, this piece of work that you've made. And I mean, at best, maybe not mm -hmm. get it, you know, and maybe even have an angry or some kind of negative reaction to it. And I just think it's interesting, the stories and the histories and how everything comes together in the ways that it does. And I mean, this now we're going all the way back to when you were a teenager and realizing and your parents pointing out to you that Clay has called to you. The spirits have given you a gift and you're a voice for these things and a voice to understand two spirit people and then something like alternative. I, I, I'm just I'm I'm so taken with this whole um, whole story and, and, and really the sacredness involved. Yeah. throughout it. I mean, it goes back to also where we all come from the from the earth. Right. So. It's the earth taking care of us, which it'll always do, but we have to take care of her. And also to just use it as therapy, because like talking about these different subjects, like the LGBTQ community is like, there's a lot of people that are young and don't know that they have the resources that they could reach out. And there are people that understand that they could help them. And, you know, sometimes it turns ugly and they hurt themselves and that's just not right. Um, because this is how they were born and they should, um, they need to know and that they have the support and the, you know, everybody's individual and people that don't under understand it are afraid of the unknown. I mean, if they were born straight, that's all they know, but they don't know that a person was born um, as queer. So they don't know that either. So they have to educate themselves and understand that people are people. Love is love. And this is, you know, this is reality and this is not made up. Um, they won't understand it unless you have somebody um, in your family or, you know, chances are that you do. And we have to protect everybody as humans. Um, that's, I mean, we all have our, di our differences, so we have to love each other as, you know, our family. I often ask people about spiritual framework in the work that they do. And so we have talked about the spirits and we've talked about this, this line of, of history and, and culture that is being shared forward through you, you're carrying this forward. Is there more to say on that? Do you feel like you have a, a spiritual practice or spiritual perspective that is uh, how you look at the world, how you look at your life, how you look at this work that is driving, motivating you, leading you? Yeah. Sometimes I don't even think about it at all. I just do it. So like I, I, I interpret it as um, all the ideas coming into my head i know i have add so i'm all over the place all the time and i'm constantly thinking of ideas or or um just how to do something is automatically installed in my head <laughs> i don't know how to say it but it's just kind of funny so i interpret it as like it's not 
it's not my idea. It's not me. It's coming. I'm a conduit for everything that I'm doing. So yeah, like I accept it. Like I, you know, it's not about me. It's way bigger. So all of these ideas and the know how to do this is just coming through it. And I'm just listening to these and I'm not putting any hurdles in front of me. I attack it and I try to make it a reality, uh, make set the goals as high as I can possibly because and that's like when I'm working with students, I always say like set these goals really high because once you get, you know, three quarters of the way there, you realize that once you put in the work and don't stop creating and never give up, you can achieve anything that you want. So once you reach that goal, you're like, oh, damn, I should have set it higher. <laughs> so I just want it to people to understand that I'm a conduit. It's not me. It's something speaking through me. So um, I don't. You know, I just, again, I just try to respect it as much as I can and explain as much as I can uh, um, and really use it in the right way, what it was intended for, and to also capture our history and a timeline of what was going on now. And then eventually, um, of course, it's going to outlive who me as a human and it'll, I'll leave my track there and I'll leave a timeline of what was going on in the world at the time. And then know that, you know, I, I mean, the only time I could die happy is that knowing that I have left that legacy and like uh, left somebody that I have taught this um, way of uh, carrying on the tradition of Cochiti pottery alive and making sure it doesn't die out. So that's when I can die happy and I'll feel successful then. But now it's just, you know, I'm doing what is in my head and what has been installed to me into me. That word conduit, that really resonates for me. And it's one that I have used and it's one that I continue to work with. Like I, 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 it sounds to me like you are very much comfortable and have found that confident, that strong place to, to just rest with that, to get out of your own way. And that's something that I'm continuing to try to work on with myself, but the word conduit as a means of this is what the gods have given me. This is what the light is that I have to shine in the world. And really, I think um, well, again, if I use myself as an example, we let the brain get in the way, we let the ego, right. we let the fears or whatever. And so we don't speak up. We don't talk about these important things like we necessarily need to, and we don't allow the best of what we have to offer to shine through us. Yeah. That you just, that that's the conduit. Such a big word for me. Yeah. You just got to put everything out that you want to, uh, put it out there. You know, don't, freak out on what you're doing. I mean, if you know it's the right thing to do, uh, doesn't hurt anybody, you know, just get it out there and just do it. And then the second you pull something off, you're like, oh, that wasn't too hard. Okay. Then you just keep opening doors for yourself. And then eventually um, you're going to need help. If it grows bigger, then you can help other people as well, understand it and maybe employ them as well. So it it's just all, um, it spreads, it grows, the web gets bigger and bigger, quicker. So like with our company, my company is like, I needed, I mean, I did all the admin part of it, the administration behind the scenes and that got overwhelming. So my manager, Tisha Goyo, we've been working for together for over two decades. And I always, um, we always have a, a saying and it's a funny thing. Like she's my master. She's, <laughs> she's like, she controls every part of my, uh, the administration part of my business. And without her, I wouldn't be able to pull up half of what I can do because it's just gotten so big to coordinate all of the different when we go into production say for like clothing or um, handbags or something and you know all of that is made in Los Angeles and that's where she resides so I'm able to rely on her to run that part of the the business where she can go to the manufacturers on say every once every week and also you know 
we have a large bill with FedEx because like I have to approve different <laughs> different products and I make all of the samples here. Let's say a handbag at Cochiti. I hand sew, sew them myself and then I will send them to her. She takes them to the manufacturers and then we discuss the details and the further de- it gets developed and I eventually have to go to the manufacturers in person and to approve everything to make any changes that we need to. But um, it works out really well. And like on a full production with t-shirts, there's so many different people, like there's 40 people, employees at one time under our, our manufacturing of clothing. There's the dye houses, there's the cut and sew people, there's the printing, there's a the packaging, there's a the shipping. So there, it takes a lot, a huge team to pull off um, manufacturing. But once you go through the process and learn it and really, Another thing I wanted to talk about was like protecting yourself with um, copyrights and trademarks and registered marks. Like this all becomes a part of a, the bigger scene and it's impossible to do it without any help. So yeah, like there's, you need a team to, once you start manufacturing some of your art. Well, you're talking about those goals, you're, you're, how you suggest and teach and, and, and recommend to, you know, like say the college students in at Colorado College or, or whoever you're saying dream big and bigger than you even think. And I can only imagine that there was a surely a time. I mean, you'll tell me if not, but when you were younger and you would not have necessarily imagined um, being in this place where you're employing these people and you're doing all these different things. I mean, how do, do you look back at that and you realize, wow, look how far I've I've come in this work and in this process. Uh, what is that path like? Or is it, I just... It, I, I, again, you, you're, you're farther down that road than I am. I've, I struggle with looking down the road and seeing all is possible. These are still the practices of me trying to get out of my way. Yeah. And you figured out something that I, I haven't yet. I mean, I, you know what, like just to boil it, if you take a step back, the more you fail, the quicker you're going to figure it out. So don't be afraid to fail because mm. a lot of people now that they see what they see on social networks on Instagram, right? Everything's all Photoshopped and very calculated and you know filters and all so you get a wrong sense of what the real world looks like (laughs) so yeah you have to really get out there and just do it and um, get your hands dirty and and be willing to work for what you want and you're capable of accomplishing any of your goals so with the students it's just it's just so fun like some of the different um, uh, collaborations that I've I've got to work with say Augusta Smith and in Arizona and Grayson Fair out at the Wrights Ranch. Like, I didn't know I was going to get myself into um, working with uh, very coarse clay that um, Don Wright at the Wrights Ranch, the iconic ranches, like, that was his work, right? And I was able to work there during the pandemic. And it was just only myself, Augusta Smith, and Grayson Fair. Grayson was a re- uh, resident artist there. So he uh, works with all the different atmospheric um, firing, like um, the soda firing, the wood firing, uh, raku firing. And those are some of the stuff that I've, uh, techniques that I've never used before. And to be able to create and on right studio, like his aesthetic was very, it looks very old school, like just very thick and manly and very rough with the clay and just stabbing here and texture. And like where I come from and what I was raised on was Cochiti pottery is like, it has to be smooth because we paint our designs onto it. So all of the pieces I was used to is making them very smooth. But then to make that um, that segue into using high fire ceramics and techniques, like I, um, all the traditional work stays here at Cochiti. So when I'm off working and teaching, I use the high fire ceramics because 
I never know. I never knew you could go to a, a ceramic store and just go buy clay <laughs> and like all the <laughs> all materials you need. Because like I grew up collecting and making everything and uh, preparing all the materials that we use. Right. But it was, it, and then like um, the wood firing, pit firing for traditional work. But then also once I started, I mean, because that was like tunnel vision on my part, and that was what my whole life was about with traditional work. But once I started to travel and to do all these different workshops and stuff, then my eyes were open that you could just buy different textures of clay, colors of clay, different cones. And um, a funny saying that um, every time I'm interacting with non-indigenous ceramicists that they ask me like what cone I fire to. And I had no idea of like, uh, I'm not formally trained or went to school for anything, but I was like a snow cone, ice cream cone. I have no idea like what (laughs) what cone they're talking about. And that eventually meant like the temperature of the clay I was firing it to. I think the, willingness to fail and use that as a method to learn is something that a lot of us have a hard time getting behind. Um, a tough lesson for us to learn that we need to learn by having not learned yet. If all that makes sense, right? Like it's, I don't know if that's about ego, if it's about, you know, personality or what, but I want every step I take to be extremely fruitful and perfect. (laughs) If that's, if that's my thinking instead of, well, what you're saying, I think it's a great lesson. It's like fail and fail fast, which is what they've done in more recent years with technology, right? Like oh, yeah. just fail and break a lot of stuff right. and we'll figure out the answers. That's very true. Cause I think that was installed in me when I was a kid because working with traditional pottery, you know, you pit fire them. They all have to be a certain um, thickness with no air bubbles cause it fires so quick. So when I've lost so many pieces and that's where I became like, numb to failure so i was okay with it and you know chances are it'll blow up or crack during the firing after say three weeks of work of um, because the firing is the last process of the traditional work but you take it out after it's all painted polished you put it on the the pit fire the the grill and you're like maybe you know not even 45 minutes into firing and you hear a thud and you don't know if it's cracked or it blew up or <laughs> so there's just so many different things that could really mess up. And, you know, we always say our prayers when we're going to fire it and, you know, ask for help from the spirits and from the people that are being a conduit for it. And hopefully it comes out well, fires well, but I mean, it's just such a, a cool feeling to feel that. But then also like when I'm working with, students or with friends like Gus or Grayson then you're able to once you I mean of course like pieces tip over in the in the kiln they get basically glued to one another forever (laughs) so like it's just like there's so many things that could mess up and you just expect them but you pray for the best and and once you get out these pieces that come out really really awesome you know it's all worth it so everything that we do you translate it into that uh try every, try anything that you want figure it out make sure it works and make it happen everybody's capable of of, of creating stuff and making it uh, something really cool if we go back to the conduit thing for a moment in this idea of spirits guiding that you are you're doing what you're on this earth and meant to be doing then are you able to feel fairly calm and and comfortable with the idea of things blowing up in the, in the kiln and not, you know, just not turning out the way you would have hoped or the way you prayed for. Do you feel like you do a, a pretty even keeled job of, well, that's the way that was to go. I yeah. Guess. So, I mean, I, yes, I get that all the time, but sometimes like mistakes turn out to be really cool. 
So like, you know what, I always welcome it and I just let it happen naturally, whatever is going to happen. So like I said, a mistakes come out accidentally um, and you like how it looks and you've d discovered something that you never thought you would have. So just go with the flow, you know, ask for the best and don't get hurt. I mean, you're, you will be hurt when a piece blows up when he's been, when you've been working for so long on it. But, um, but the chances are if it comes out, I mean, the success of it is like way, it, it, it heals everything, all of your, um, the hurt, your hurt feelings that, <laughs> that came with something blew up. So yeah, definitely expect it. And, um, but you're going to learn more the quicker you do it. I'm going to take that to heart and, and keep pondering that, uh, long after we're done talking here today, because, uh, there's something about my ego that still needs me to keep, keep learning that I think right. to, to be willing to be wrong, to fail, to not get it just right. And especially when that's done publicly, Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, like say with the podcast or whatever, or some art exhibit of mine to just, just be cool with that, to be able to sit comfortably in that discomfort instead of thinking everything has to be perfect. It's humanity. That's what it is. We're all human. Yeah. We're not perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what it's about. And you know, just accept it. It's okay. It's okay. It's, I mean, what's that saying? But did you die? But did you die? No. Yeah. So you just have to just try anything and you know, you're going to most likely you're going to figure out something more than what you thought you would. So success has come the more you fail at something and it's exciting in a way too. And eventually you'll learn to accept it a little bit easier than the first time it happened. This brings us to the last question. What I'd like us to do is to distill down what you think matters to the essence of what matters to you in your work and who you are and how you show up as humanness and creativity in this world. Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm very happy and thankful that I can make my living as an artist, as a creative, and to be able to uh, educate the world about the 1680 Pueblo Revolt of what happened to our people, the genocide, and to really spark their interest for them to research it and study about the indigenous people that were here and we still are here, um, know our history and really open their minds to it. Also, just to along the way of, of uh, being a creative, that world incorporates so many people um, that become a part of your team. And it's really fun. Like you get to meet all these really cool people and to share your art with them. And then they share their art with you and you become one as a team and you help support each other and, you know, get open doors for one another, help each other succeed and uh, just really support each other. So I think you know, art is there to educate people, to make people think about something they never really thought about before. It's eye-opening and it gives me a chance to interact with people and to share the stories and to really hopefully inspire them to not be afraid to try their goals, even if it's something that they didn't go to school for or, or you know, don't hold back because um, the time that we have on this earth is very short. Don't be afraid to try anything creative. Just just do it at least once so you'll have no regrets and uh, you'll figure it out eventually. Don't put up any hurdles and um, never stop creating. Thank you. I, I appreciate that you said we're still here. Yeah. Um, you know, it, because again, we talked about efforts over history that have been to erase that history, erase your being here. And I often close my episodes in the outro to the audience with thank you for being here. So Virgil Ortiz, thank you for being here and having this conversation with me for Humanitude. I appreciate it so much and appreciate your work. 
Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I had a blast out of him and I can't wait to meet you in person. All right, that was artist Virgil Ortiz in today's Humanity Conversation of Humanness and Creativity. You can learn more about Virgil in the show notes published on our website at humanity.com, including finding a link to view his piece that we talked about, Alternative, which celebrates two-spirit people. To keep the good going, follow Humanity on your podcast player or subscribe to the Humanity newsletter via the website. We're regularly adding conversations like this one, full of vulnerability, depth, and soul. I also encourage you to post ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever else you can, and to share the Humanity Podcast on your social media pages. You can follow and tag us at Humanity on Instagram. To contribute financial support, even just $1 to give a buck for Humanity, go to the website. Again, that's Humanity.com, and you'll see the support link in the navigation menu. Together, we can cultivate a more thoughtful, kind, and creative world. And now, the question I ask you at the end of every episode. How are you living humanness and creativity in your life? I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of the Humanity Podcast. Thanks for being here. Shakalaka.